Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Today, the government released the employment situation report for the month of July. This was the first Friday in August, and so we get the numbers for the prior month, as we do every single month. And as is typical, Wall Street awaits these numbers with bated breath. Everybody is excited about whether or not we're going to beat the estimate. In this case, the consensus forecast was for 190,000 jobs being created. In fact, a lot of people thought the number would be higher than that. We got a higher than expected number on Wednesday for private sector job creation. So there was some anticipation that the government number would also beat estimates, but that was not the case. The actual number came in at 157,000 jobs. But Instead of looking at the 157,000, a lot of people on Wall Street drew some solace in the fact that the prior months were revised upward. Uh, The uh, June month, which was originally reported as plus 213,000, was revised to up 248, and the month before that was revised up a bit as well. And so they said, hey, it's a push, even though this month was lower than we thought. The last two were higher, so there's nothing to worry about. Well, I still think there's a lot to worry about because if you look now at the drop between June and July, we went from 248,000 jobs supposedly created. And again, it's supposed because they don't really have that much proof 
you know, not 80, 90 percent of the jobs come from the birth death assumptions. So I, I, I take these numbers with a grain of salt anyway. But if you look at the number we got from last month, 248,000 for June, and now it collapsed all the way down to 157,000 for July, that could be a trend. We could have peaked out in job creation, and that could be a big drop. In fact, for all we know, we could revise to 157 lower. Now, I know a lot of people are thinking, oh, maybe they'll revise to 157 higher. But if you look at a lot of the other economic data, some of which I will get into in this podcast, we're seeing a lot of worrying uh, signs or warning signs that people should be worried about. But again, they're dismissing them, much the way they did Uh, 10 years ago. You know, we're getting close to the 10-year anniversary of the onset of the 2008 financial crisis. Remember, the whole thing started in August of 2008. Here we are, August 2018, 10 years later. I think we're headed for an even bigger crisis, and um, the same people are even more clueless. In fact, I I I recorded an interview today that's going to air on the BBC over in the UK. It was me and a few other people who uh, were credited for having predicted the 08 financial crisis, and they wanted to know what we're saying now uh, and to see if they think we're, we're given any more credibility or taken any more seriously now, considering we were right back then, uh, you know, is the, is the mainstream media or is, uh, you know, our economists or anybody, uh, you know, paying attention to what we're saying? And, of course, the consensus was absolutely not. Uh, you know, nobody wants to believe me or anybody else who, Uh, accurately forecast what was going to happen in in 2008. But there's a lot of data that is coming out that is being ignored. Uh, So when they look at this big decline month over month in job creation, nobody seems to think it's a problem because everybody wants to look at the economic glass as half full. Meanwhile, the, uh, the wages, right, the hourly earnings, average hourly earnings, rose 0.3, which was the expectation. But the prior month, which was originally reported as up 0.2, that was revised to down 0.1. And for all we know, the 0.3 that we just got could be downwardly revised next month. But if you take the average hourly earnings numbers at face value and look at the year-over-year increase, the gain is 2.7%. That's how much nominal wages have gone up over the last year. And that includes, of course, all of these minimum wage hikes, uh, which have, you know, have taken place over the past year. With all those hikes to the minimum wage, we've got a year-over-year increase in hourly wages of 2.7%. Now, the CPI has gone up by 2.9% during the same period. Now, of course, I don't believe that that 2.9% really captures the full extent to which the cost of living is going up. I think the government's version of consumer prices has been deliberately engineered to come up with a number that's lower than what's actually happening. But even if the government was accurate, even using their 2.9% number, that shows that real wages, despite the 2.7% increase, real wages are actually down. During that year. In fact, this is the biggest drop in real wages in six years. Now, to hear Donald Trump talk or anybody else talk, real wages are soaring, right? Everybody's getting a raise. They're not. Inflation, consumer prices are rising faster than wages. And of course, not even counted in consumer prices are interest rates. 
They're not a component, but interest rates have gone up a lot in the past year. And so that means to the extent that consumers are buying stuff on credit, the cost of servicing their debt is going up. If they own any kind of mortgage that adjusts based on interest rates, well, those payments are increasing. So the cost of living is rising much faster uh, than wages. But the information or the data that's coming out should uh, give people pause because if you look at the data, it would indicate that a slowdown in the economy is rapidly approaching, which is probably going to result in a reversal of these job gains. In fact, even the Atlanta Fed, you know, they were at 5% now for their uh, estimate for Q3 GDP. And they they went down today to 4.4 based on the weak economic data that came out today. But based on all the weak economic data that I think is going to come out uh, over the course of the next several months, that number is probably going to go a lot lower. In fact, I'm very surprised again that the number starts out as high as it did. And we had a lot of uh, weak economic data, too, that came out prior to today. And in fact, the jobs data wasn't the only weak report that came out today. We got more weak economic data. Uh, So given all that data, I think that they probably should have come down even higher. The one thing, of course, that's masking a lot of the weakness is the inflation that is accelerating. And clearly, inflation is accelerating at a much faster pace than these official statistics would reveal. And so that makes it easier uh, for people to be fooled by the data that the numbers, though, are higher simply because of underreported inflation rather than real economic growth. And before I get to going over more of this economic data, now I want to talk again about uh, my dad's book, The King of Malts, because I do think that more people should get a copy of that book uh, to really understand inflation and, and, and where it's coming from and how the government creates it. And this short little comic book I think is the shortest, most concise, real explanation of inflation. And I think, you know, anybody could read it in a short period of time and really understand uh, inflation because there's so much misinformation out there, deliberately so by the government. The government doesn't want the public to know where inflation comes from or even what inflation is, because if you understand what inflation is, then you know where it comes from. Um, but if you read this book, you'll you know, obviously have an understanding. Clearly, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know. So it's just kind of good to have the book because I think it's funny. I mean, it, uh, my dad had a great sense of humor, and his sense of humor comes out in this book, The Kingdom of Malls. I'm actually surprised that I still have copies left. I think I had about 20 uh, uh, cases of this book when I first discovered them, and I'm now down to maybe five or six left. And so when they're gone, they're gone. They were printed over 15 years ago. But one of the things that's interesting about the book is how expensive they are if you want to buy them like on Amazon. And, you know, the prices were high before I started selling them. And I thought that I would have killed the market because now I've I've put hundreds and hundreds of copies out there. But the market is still pretty tight. In fact, if you go to Amazon right now and just type in the Kingdom of Malts, M-O-L-T-Z, you'll see that there are uh, six new, five new copies available for sale, brand new copies. And the cheapest one is $180. Then you got a couple for $285.92. dollars 
you got one at 330 and then you got the most expensive copy uh, $611.79. Now, where they got that 79 cents from, I don't know. Why Why 611 Oh, it's an extra $3 shipping. I mean, you figure you're going to spend $611.79 on a book. They ought to throw in the shipping for free. I mean, they really want to charge you an extra $3. But, I mean, those are crazy prices for uh, the new copies. The used copies, though, are just as expensive. There's three used copies for sale. The cheapest one is $285.92, uh, and uh, the most expensive is $344.27. And they say used very good. I mean, so these are expensive uh, books. I'm selling them on shiftbooks.com for $25 a copy. They're brand new. Right? These books have never been taken out of the box. I just take them out of the box to autograph them. And then I put them back and then, you know, they're put in an envelope and shipped out. So my copies are autographed by me, obviously. They're not autographed by, by my father. And this was the second printing of the book. The first printing of the book took place, I think, in the 70s. And the book was, the cover price was $2.50. I don't even have any of those myself. I mean, I wish I had a copy, the original, but I don't. I don't even know if any, and maybe somebody has them. But then my father reprinted them about 15 years ago. And those are the copies I have. Uh, but since then, none have been printed and, you know, probably no more are going to be printed. So when I run out, I'm, they're, they're gone. But um, I think if you don't have a copy, you should pick up a copy and, you know, share it with your friends. But don't give it to your friends. Make sure if you loan the book out, you get it back. Because, again, there's not a lot of them out there. I'm sure, you know, people that bought them a long time ago, I, you know, I doubt they kept them. Uh, who knows what happened to them? Uh, and I'm lucky that I have these. But anyway, if you want to get your copy, and I autograph a while supplies last, go to shiftbooks.com, like S-C-H-I-F-F books.com. But let me go back to the economic data that came out this week uh, that is also a negative. One was on the trade deficit. So we got the trade deficit, which swelled about 7% in the month of June, right? A big increase in the trade deficit. The prior month was $43.2 billion after a slight upward revision. The consensus was $45.6 billion, and we got $46.3 billion. So it was just, what, a few days ago, Donald Trump was out there claiming credit for this huge drop in our trade deficit. The trade deficit just swelled by 7%, and we're on track for this year to be the biggest trade deficit in 10 years. The last time the trade deficit was this big was the 2008 financial crisis. And the reason the trade deficit went down was because the economy tanked, right? And people stopped buying stuff. So we stopped importing. But it was all that cheap money that was fueling the bubble uh, that led to the record high trade deficits in 2008. And now we're going to have the, the biggest trade deficit since then. But of course, if you don't count oil, because What's happened between now and 2008 was the whole boom and fracking and the increase in U.S. energy production. But if you if you don't count energy, this year will be the biggest trade deficit in history. Right. And Trump is out there claiming credit for the tariffs bringing down the trade deficit. The tariffs haven't done anything. In fact, the only thing they're going to do is they're going to drive up consumer prices and they're going to weaken the economy. And I'm going to talk a lot more uh, in the final part of this podcast about tariffs and trade in China, because I'm hearing all kinds of nonsense now uh, about trade in China, and I want to really clear this up uh, 
you know, at, in the last part of this podcast. I just want to go over some of the data. So we got the trade data out today that was weaker than expected. We also got the ISM non-manufacturing index way, way below expectations. Last month was 59.1. And the expectation was for a number almost as good in July. They were looking for 58.8. Instead, we got 55.7. That is a huge miss on that number. And the bad data didn't start today. We got construction spending, came out a couple days ago. That was supposed to be up 0.3. And it came in as down 1.1. Big drop in construction spending. Yes, they did upwardly revise the prior month from up 0.4 to up 1.3. But this miss was bigger than the upward revision to the prior month. But again, more important is the direction. Right. We're we're falling fast. So we're falling in job creation. We're falling in construction. And look at the big drop in auto sales that came out. Also, uh, July was, uh, I think, a three, what, three and a half percent or so decline in auto sales. This was one of the worst months in years uh, for auto sales. Think about this. What segments of the economy seem to be rolling over? It's housing. Right, based on construction, uh, based on home sales, and autos. Well, obviously, these are the two sectors of the consumer economy that are most susceptible to increases in interest rates because these products are purchased using credit. Right, People buy houses using a mortgage, and most people take out a loan to buy a car. Well, obviously, the cost of borrowing money to buy houses and cars are going up. And also, the cost of building houses and building cars are going up. Not only is inflation driving up the costs, but tariffs are driving up the costs. And so as houses and cars become more expensive to make and rising interest rates make them more expensive to buy, obviously, those sectors are going to contract. And there's a lot of jobs associated with those sectors. So there's going to be job losses. And these are more higher paying jobs, the construction jobs, the auto manufacturing jobs. So as these jobs get, you know, get wiped out because the consumers are tapped out and we already see that. I talked about the fact that real incomes are falling, even though we have these nominal wage gains, they're being eroded by an increase in cost of living that is being underreported by the government. So the actual decline in real wages is much greater than what is generally perceived to the extent that anybody perceives it at all. Of course, the stock market continues to rise, uh, ignoring all of the weak economic data. Uh, Dow Jones finished the day and the week on a positive note. Gold, on the other hand, made a new low for the year yesterday. I mean, we were up a little bit today. Not much, considering how bad the economic data was. I think we had maybe a three or four dollar per ounce gain in the price of gold. We're still above 1200 though. Uh, I think we closed out the week around 1207. The dollar index barely went down today. The weak economic data uh, not uh, taking a toll. The dollar index again managing to close the day and the week above 95 at 95.14. In fact, in the middle of the week, we did get the yield on the 10-year treasury 
moving back above 3%. And in fact, the catalyst for the move above 3% was the news that the deficits were going to be bigger, right? The, the, the uh, amount of issuance of 10-year government bonds was going to be larger than was initially uh, you know, forecast. And so the additional supply initially sent bond yields moving above 3%. And that also helped prop up the dollar and depress gold. But the weak economic data that has come out since has moved the yields back below 3%. But if you look at a chart uh, it looks to me like yields are going much higher. Uh, we're consolidating. We haven't, quote, made a big break yet to the upside, but we're consolidating the gains that we already, uh, you know, booked in yields and the decline in bond prices. And I think we're getting ready for another big move up. But it's not because the economy is stronger. It's not economic growth that's going to be the driver behind higher yields. It's going to be rising inflation and the inflationary premiums that have to be built into the bonds and the, you know, the glut of supply. The fact that the government is going to be selling more and more treasuries and in order to attract buyers, they're going to have to pay a higher price, right? That's supply and demand, right? If you have more and more supply, then you're going to have to see the price of the bonds coming down or said the other way. If you have to convince more and more people to loan you money, you have to pay them a higher interest rate. Just like a lot of people are saying that wages, they expect wages to go up because they think that there's you know, there's no workers left and that in order to entice workers back into the labor market, employers are going to be offering uh, higher pay. I don't see that happening because I think the labor market is going to roll over. And what really drives pay is productivity. And we don't have rising productivity in the United States. We have rising debt. We have rising inflation. And, and I, you know, a lot of other people, too, the way they expect it to work is that as wages are driven higher by the demand for scarce workers, that those wage hikes are going to end up fueling an increase in inflation, but potentially it's tempered by the fact that at least people have higher wages. But I don't think it's wages going up that cause inflation. I think wages can go up as a result of inflation because wages are simply prices. They're just the price of labor, just like the price of anything else. And all of that is influenced by the creation of money, which is inflation. But I expect that the prices of goods, the prices of consumer goods to be going up a lot more than the price of labor. I think the price of labor could go up too uh, for some jobs, but for all, all workers, the price of goods and services is going to be rising at a much faster clip. And one of the drivers too behind the increasing cost of living is going to be the tariffs, which, you know, the tariff war was escalated again on both sides. Trump came out, you know, we're going to increase the tariffs on China uh, to 25%, I think on $200 billion or something worth of imports. And today, I think China fired back uh, at its own citizens by announcing more tariffs on Chinese citizens who want to buy some U.S. products. So we're going back and forth. But the rhetoric here is really ridiculous. Because if you listen to the Larry Kudlow's and a lot of other people now that are coming on television, it's like, we've got China by the balls. You know, we're going to make them feel some pain. They're going to give in. We're going to put the screws on their economy. You know, we're going to force them to play fair and we're going to make them change their ways because they have so much to lose. 
and you know relative to us and you know we're we're going to be unscathed i mean our economy is great i mean we look at the chinese stock market that is already now in a bear market and we say look at how much the chinese stock market has gone down and our stock market hasn't gone down at all therefore all the pain is in china it's not in the united states the reason that the Chinese stock market is suffering so much more than the American stock market is because investors are clueless. They believe all this nonsense that China is going to lose the trade war and America is going to win. It couldn't be further from the truth. We have got a lot more to lose. In fact, China has a lot to gain if they would only figure this out. I mean, I, I never could understand why the Chinese for so long have been willing to subsidize the U.S. economy. But that is what they have been doing. They have been artificially suppressing the standard of living of their own people so that they can prop up the standard of living of Americans. They have been denying their own citizens the production that they otherwise would have been entitled to by diverting that production to exports. And to think that somehow that China is the winner and we have been the losers and that we're going to force them now to, to change their ways, this is absurd. You know, it's the same type of argument that economists made. And I, I've been pointing this out. I pointed this out in my first book, Crash Proof. When the Second World War was nearing an end, there were economists that were worried that the end of the war was going to bring about a recession because there would be lots of unemployment, because all of the factories that were making bombs and stuff for the war effort, well, they weren't going to have anything to make anymore. And all the soldiers and all the people that worked in those factories were going to be unemployed. So everybody was worried that there was going to be this big economic downturn. Now, fortunately, nobody took the advice of those uh, economists. We ended the war anyway. And rather than an economic downturn, we had an economic boom. In fact, you hear all these economists today, they, they like to say that World War II got us out of the Great Depression. And that's, that's not correct. World War II didn't end the Great Depression. I mean, yes, the GDP went up because of all the wartime production. But if you look at the standard of living of American citizens during the war, right, the American citizens who weren't fighting, obviously you had a lousy standard of living if you were in Africa or, you know, South Pacific or, you know, in Russia somewhere fighting, right? <laughs> on the front. Uh, so obviously the soldiers had a very bad standard of living and a lot of them died. But even the people that didn't go off to war, right, the people that stayed home, the, the, the standard of living during the war was lower than it was during, during the Depression. I mean, everything was rationed. I mean, people went without things. I mean, it was very difficult because all of the resources were being utilized for the war. And so that meant that there was a shortage of goods uh, for uh, Americans who weren't fighting in the war. And so people really had to sacrifice uh, to, to keep that war going. And of course, a lot of Americans bought war bonds, right? They were investing. They were buying government bonds to help finance the war. So things were really very depressed as far as the economy was concerned during the Second World War. It was when the war ended that the economy boomed. Why? Because the government dramatically cut spending. That's why. Right. They raised taxes, too, during the war. They imposed the, the, the withholding tax during the war and all sorts of other temporary taxes. So taxes went up, uh, spending, real, you know, consumption went down. There were tough times. But when the war ended and government spending collapsed, that's when the Depression ended. And what happened was all the factories 
that were making things for the war, well, they started making stuff for consumers. And all the soldiers who were fighting in the war went back to productive employment, right? They were starting to make things that people could consume and enjoy rather than fighting a war. And so the same arguments are being made now with respect to China, right? Why is China supposedly going to suffer in this trade war, right? Because we're their biggest uh, market because they make all these products. They have all these factories that are making all this stuff for Americans to consume. And right. And if we weren't there to consume this stuff, well, the factories would shut down and all the workers would lose their jobs. Well, that's the same thing as making an argument that if, if, if America stopped making bombs, we, you know, the factories would shut down. I mean, they retool. It's not like all those factories that are making stuff in China that are being shipped to America. It's not like they can't make stuff for the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese people want things, right? It's not like the Chinese people don't want stuff. It's not like there's some guy in China who's working in a factory that, let's say, produces washing machines, and the washing machines are sent to America. It's not like the guy in the, on the production line is thinking, gee, I don't know why the Americans want these washing machines. Why would anybody want a washing machine? Don't they have any streams? You know, can't they just wash their clothes in a, in a big bucket? In, you know, in, in, you know in, why do they need a washing machine? They can't wash by hand? No. I mean, the reason that maybe a lot of people in China still don't have washing machines is because they can't afford them. It's not that they don't want them, but the reality is they can afford them. It's the Americans who can't afford them. It's the Chinese who are making them. See, if you can make something, you can afford it. Supply creates its own demand. So if the Chinese can produce something, then the Chinese can consume something. The reason they're not is because China is propping up the dollar to make Americans richer and their own citizens poorer. So the American can now outbid the Chinese person for the product that the Chinese person is helping to produce. But if China stopped exporting, and of course they also stopped buying dollars and stopped buying treasuries and simply allowed a realignment of exchange rates where the dollar goes down and yuan goes up, all of a sudden the Chinese worker can now bid more for that washing machine than the American and now he gets to buy it, right? So if the Chinese can focus their resources on civilian production for their own citizens rather than for Americans, that's the same thing as going from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy, except the Chinese aren't fighting the Nazis. The war they're fighting is to prop up the American economy, to prop up the American standard of living. Well, why don't they just surrender that war and, and, and don't care about the American standard of living? Let it collapse and just allow their own people to enjoy the fruits of their own labor. Let real incomes rise in China. Let real prices decline in China so the Chinese can buy what they're producing. And now what happens in America? Well, all those goods are gone. I mean, picture America without all these imports and not just the imports from China. What about all the other things that are imported? What would America be like? I mean, it would, would, all the shelves would be empty. And to the extent that we could put something there, the price would be so high that not many Americans could actually afford to buy. We have got so much to lose uh, in, this, uh, in this trade war, and people are completely oblivious. I mean, more so than they were oblivious to the problems uh, that led to the financial crisis. I mean, I had an analogy that I used to give in my lectures, and I also included it in my book, uh, The Real Crash. 
But I'm going to do that analogy again. And, and maybe you've already heard it before. And so maybe, you know, it can't hurt to hear it again. But I'm sure there's a lot of people that have never heard this analogy. And it, it really uh, makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it really puts the relationship in its proper perspective. And the analogy has to do with five castaways who are stranded on a, on a, on a desert island. And it, there's four Asians or four Chinese people and, and one American, right? And they're, they're stranded, they're marooned on this island and they get together and they decide that, okay, you know, we're here, we got to divvy up the tasks, right? So one of the, one of the Asians, uh, he's going to be in charge of gathering the wood so that they can make a fire and then he's going to keep the fire going, right? So because the, the most important thing is they need food, right? So they're going to divvy up the tasks of, of food. And then they're going to have another uh, Asian guy and he's going to go and he's going to, you know, go throughout the island and, and try to find whatever vegetation he can find so that they can eat, right? You know, some kind of, you know, maybe some leaves or stuff that might be edible that they could get that grows on the trees and, and for, for, the, for the meal. Then one guy is going to be in charge of hunting. He's going to try to get some, some fish or he's going to try to get uh, some meat or something like that. Um, and then there's going to be another Asian, and he's going to have to put everything together. He's going to have to cook the meal and, and prepare everything and, you know, and do all that work. Right? So they're dealing up the test. And then, then they get to the American, and it's like, okay, well, you know, what's the American's job going to be? And the American's job is going to be eating. Right? His job is to eat the food that the other four Asians uh, prepare. Right? So all these guys work hard all day long, hunting, gathering, preparing, you know, making this meal. And while the American, he just lies on the beach, right? He suntans, he goes, he goes for a swim, and he just sits there. And he waits while all these Asians are busy working all day, sweating. They don't have any leisure because they're too busy doing all this work. And then at the end of the day, they all get together at this big table, and they all feed the American. I mean, that's it, right? And of course, they don't give all the food to the American because then the, the four Asians, would, they'd all die of malnutrition. So they get a little bit, right? They just, they eat just enough so that they don't drop dead, right? So that they, they can go and repeat the whole thing the following day so they can keep on feeding this American, right? Now, an economist, right? A modern day economist, somebody with a PhD in economics, right? Maybe somebody at the Federal Reserve or something or, you know, on the Council of Economic Advisors, right? He would look at this island and he would say, well, the American is the key to the entire economy. He's the most important person there because, you know, without this American eating all the food, these other four Asians, they'd all be unemployed, right? But, I mean, you can see the nonsense here because the, the, the Asians don't need the American. The American needs the Asians. Without the, without the Asians, the American would starve. Or at least he'd, act to, he'd have to work. Right? He couldn't just lie on the beach all day. He'd actually act to go out there and participate and produce. I mean, what would be the best thing that can happen to these four Asians? Well, they kick that fat American off the island and, you know, and just eat their own food. Because if they didn't have to feed the American, it's not like they couldn't eat the food themselves. Right. I mean, you know, they're going to bed hungry so they can feed this American. But of course, maybe they don't need that much food. Maybe they're producing more food because of how fat this American is and how much he eats. If they didn't have to feed the American, maybe they wouldn't have to spend all day hunting and gathering and cooking. Maybe they could cut that, those tasks in half, and now they'd have a lot of free time to do other things. Maybe they could build a hut for themselves that they can live in. Or hey, maybe they can build a boat and get the hell off the island. There's all sorts of things they're not doing because they're devoting all their time and resources 
to feeding this American. Right? Well, that's what's going on right now in China. Think about all the things that Chinese could be doing with their resources, with their labor, if they weren't devoting those resources to making stuff for Americans. Now, of course, you could say, but they're getting something. They're getting dollars. Well, what the hell are dollars? They're little pieces of paper. Now, sure, they can use some of those dollars to buy oil from OPEC, right? But now OPEC has to warehouse them. But a lot of those dollars just get recycled into U.S. treasuries, right? China's sitting on a pile of treasuries. And what do they do with those treasuries? Well, when they get interest, they use the money to buy more treasuries. How is that stack of treasuries doing anybody in China any good? Now, of course, in theory, right, the Chinese are accumulating all these assets while Americans are consuming trinkets, right? We, you know, we're, we're basically bankrupting ourselves by going into debt to consume. And the Chinese are working hard and they're accumulating a bunch of IOUs in the process. But the reality is those IOUs don't have any value because they're no good. It's like they're like bum checks, right? If I was buying products from somebody and I was writing checks and I had no money in my bank account, what good are those rubber checks? They're no good. But if the person who's selling me stuff doesn't take the checks to the bank and just puts them in a drawer and just forgets about them and he keeps taking my, my rubber checks every time I want to buy something, Right. He's deluding himself into thinking he's got a good customer and he's got a lot of money in these checks. Because if he ever actually takes the checks to the bank, you know, he's going to find out he's got nothing. Now, how do the Chinese take their treasuries to the bank? Well, they try to buy stuff with them. They try to buy real products that Americans have produced because ultimately that's what trade is all about. You export some of the stuff that you produce so you can import some of the stuff somebody else produces, right? If you can produce something efficiently, then you produce that and you trade it with somebody who can produce something else more efficiently than you. And then you get some of that stuff. And so everybody uh, specializes in certain things and everybody trades and everybody wins. But you don't export simply to export. So the fact that the Chinese are accepting our IOUs simply means they're expecting to be able to import products that we produce at some point in the future. Now, to say that the Chinese don't want to buy American stuff, it's nonsense. Of course they want American stuff. That's why they're exporting to America to buy American stuff. The problem is we don't have the stuff that they want, so they're holding on to our IOUs. But ultimately, one of two things have to happen. Either we default on the treasury bonds because we have too much debt and we can't pay, or we have to create massive inflation and the dollar collapses. And even though they get paid dollars, the dollars have no value. So in the long run, the Chinese are going to get screwed. And the more they continue to throw their good money after our bad, the more they're going to lose. So the best thing that can happen to China is to cut their losses now, just like those Asians should kick the American off the island as soon as possible, ending this practice of subsidizing, of vendor financing the U.S. economy. The sooner the Chinese do that, the better. Now, we're basically egging them on. I mean, that is the risk, right, that we actually scare them into doing what they should have done anyway, which is basically cut us off. I mean, the way that China, if they want to win the trade war, what the Chinese need to do Right? And, th- and th- this is what I would do. I mean, if I was in China, I mean, if I was running a Chinese economy, the first thing they should do is dump all their treasuries. Right? A lot of their treasuries are short-term maturities. Uh, I would try not to do it publicly if you had to sell some. I would try to just sell as many uh, longer-dated maturities as I could to try to get the best price that I can, try to get as many dollars as I can. And then once they've gotten rid of all their treasuries, 
then they just sell all of their dollars. Now, if they sell their dollars, what do they buy with their dollars? It's simple. You buy gold. The Chinese should dump all their treasuries, cash in their treasuries for dollars, and then use their dollars to buy gold. Now, obviously, if they did that, the price of gold would go way up. But the Chinese own a lot of gold already, and they would be increasing the value of the gold they already own by putting another trillion dollars into the market. But then once they've done that, right, once they've converted their worthless dollars into real gold, then they announce that the Chinese currency is now pegged to gold. They adopt the gold standard. They take their massive gold reserves and they use that to back up their currency. And then they take the Hong Kong dollar, which is now pegged to the U.S. dollar, and they peg that to gold too, or they simply peg the Hong Kong dollar to the yuan, which is pegged to gold. And they completely you know, get out of this relationship uh, with the United States dollar. Now, if the Chinese have a currency that's backed by gold, they have the only currency in the world that's backed by gold, right? They'll have a lot of stability in the currency. Their currency could become the reserve currency of the world. It could replace the dollar. And what's going to happen to the Chinese economy? It's going to explode upward as the U.S. economy implodes because the Chinese yuan backed by gold is going to gain in value dramatically relative to the dollar. So what does that mean? That means that Chinese savings that are denominated in yuan have higher values. That means Chinese wages that are in yuan have more purchasing power, right? Everybody in China becomes richer because their currency becomes dramatically more valuable. They can now buy more goods and services. Like I said earlier in the podcast, the guy that's working on an assembly mine making washing machines, all of a sudden he can afford the washing machine. His wages are way up. The price of washing machines have now come down relative to what he earns, relative to what he's saved. What happens in America? Prices skyrocket. The dollar implodes. And in fact, when we calculate the GDPs, right, Chinese GDP is going to go way up. American real GDP is going to come crashing down. And all of a sudden, China is going to be the biggest economy in the world. They're going to surpass America much faster than anybody thought because they're going to get out of the dollar buying business. Yes, they're not going to have all these exports to the United States. They're just going to produce more stuff to consume themselves. And I also think that trade will pick up with other countries, but it will be balanced trade. The Chinese will trade with individuals in other countries whose currencies are also going to go up when the dollar crashes. And now their citizens are going to be richer. And so there are going to be other markets that the Chinese could export into to replace the American market. Meanwhile, the American market is going to implode. Americans are going to be too broke to buy anything. And yes, we're going to have to start producing stuff on our own again, which means this whole phony uh, consumption-based economy is going to have to implode and we're going to have to start saving again. We're going to have to start manufacturing again. We're going to have to start producing if we want to consume and we're going to have to start saving again because you can't produce unless you have capital investment. You don't get that unless you save. And of course, we've been borrowing what the rest of the world has been saving. The Chinese are our biggest lenders, right? They're lending us their savings. Well, they're going to stop doing that. And so now we're going to have to save on our own. But when you have to do that, if you have to start saving, that means you have to stop spending. But an economy that's built on spending, the minute you have to stop spending to replenish your savings, that whole thing implodes on itself. And that is where we're headed. And the irony of it is we may be bringing this on ourselves. Now, in the long run, it's probably better that we accelerate the collapse rather than 
you know, have it happen further, because again, the longer it takes, the worse it's going to be. But the political realities of this are very, very scary because of who's in power, because of Donald Trump and the Republicans and their rhetoric and how much false credit they're claiming uh, for this economy. And the fact that they are the ones who are threatening the trade war, right? They're the ones that want to bite the hand that's been feeding us, not realizing that we're being fed, right? And so all of a sudden the food stops coming and we're going to starve to death, right? And the economy is going to implode and Trump and the Republicans and the tax cuts are all going to get the blame. This is a perfect political storm. And this socialist wave that started building under Bernie Sanders in the last election is going to crest and come crashing down in 2020. And, and, and that's going to be, you know, the nail in the coffin. I mean, this is the worst possible case scenario where you have this massive recession that brings about uh, this shift in politics where capitalism is going to completely be thrown under the bus. It's going to take all of the blame uh, for this catastrophe. And the solution is going to be government. It's going to be to make government even bigger. The problem is where are the resources going to come to do that? Um, you know, it, it, this, this whole thing is going to come uh, collapsing down. And so people have got to be prepared for this, even though the markets yet are not uh, reacting. Gold barely above 1,200. The dollar index holding above 95. People celebrating, you know, Apple computer now, trillion dollar market cap. Wow, we finally have a trillion dollar company. You know, the real reason too that Apple's a trillion dollar company, it's not that it has a very high valuation. Although, you know, the question is how long can they continue this market dominance? But what's driving Apple's earnings is not a big increase in sales. It's a big increase in prices. I mean, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the price of iPhones, but I bought, you know, the iPhone X, it was $1,000. I mean, they've been jacking up the price of these phones. Of course, the CPI doesn't even record that because they keep hedonically adjusting them to pretend that the price is going down, but the price is actually going up. But the question is, how much longer can Apple keep jacking up the prices before demand implodes? I mean, eventually that's going to happen. But in the meantime, everybody is just focusing on the fact that, oh, we got this trillion dollar company and everything is great. And they're going to pretend the economy is booming. They're going to ignore all the bad news. And especially because, look, this is the same thing the Republicans were doing when Bush was president. The exact same thing. They were excited to have a Republican office. They were excited because there were some tax cuts. There was, they were excited because there was some deregulation. Clinton was gone. Bush was in. It was the perfect economy. It was Goldilocks. It was the greatest story never told. That's what That was what Larry Kudlow was saying, right? The same Larry Kudlow who's on television now stumping for Trump. And remember, I said this too. When he was first uh, nominated. People were thinking, oh, maybe Kudlow is going to, you know, force Trump to be more free market. He's going to influence Trump. I said, no, not a chance. He's just going to be a mouthpiece. He's going to be a rubber stamp. The reason that Trump hired Kudlow was so Kudlow would no longer criticize him. You know, you keep your enemies close. By bringing Kudlow into his camp, he assured that he's not going to be criticizing any of the president's policies. He's going to be out there talking about why these policies are great. And that's all he does is talk about how great Trump was. Well, he did the same thing when Bush was was president, only now he's actually officially part of the administration. Back then, I mean, I guess he was just doing it out of some kind of allegiance uh, to the Republican Party or, you know, idealistically, he was hoping 
uh, that things were going to get better under the Republicans. And so he ignored all the evidence that I was trying to point out for years when I was a guest on his show. But despite the fact that everybody is ignoring these flashing warning signs that are flashing brighter than ever, even more so than they were 2007, 2008, before that crisis. So even though the markets haven't reflected it yet, that is your opportunity. That is the opportunity to get out of U.S. stocks, to get out of U.S. bonds, to get out of the U.S. dollar, to buy some of the valuable or relatively you know, value stocks that exist in many of the countries in the world that are going to be the new safe havens when the U.S. loses that status and the currencies that are going to gain in value when the dollar not only falls but loses its status as the reserve currency. Ironically, we could lose that status by our own hand. It's not even going to be foreigners coming to their senses. It's going to be us blown up on our own because we don't understand the dynamic. And so we're going to force the rest of the world, particularly China, to do what they should have done a long time ago. But for political reasons or whatever, I have no idea what their real agenda was. They were reluctant to do the right thing on their own. But maybe because we're forcing the issue, they're going to rethink this whole dynamic of vendor financing the world's biggest debtor and come to their senses that much sooner. And when that happens, it's going to be a major realignment of, of global living standards, of relative exchange rates. There are going to be some real losers and there's going to be some real winners. Most of the losers, of course, are going to be Americans because we've been the biggest beneficiaries of, of this uh, ridiculous uh, system. You know, I, I, um, I also, in my book, I remember my first book, I talked about it. It was like uh, Tom Sawyer. Remember in that book, uh, he was able to convince all of his buddies to whitewash the fence and, and, and pay him to do it, right? He basically got his friends to do his chores and pay him to do it, right? And he's kicked back and these guys were all like whitewashing the fence. And, and that's pretty much the global economy. Only the Americans are kicking back and the Chinese are whitewashing our fence. Meanwhile, their fences are, you know, are in disrepair or they don't even have fences. They're, they're wasting all their time making sure our fences are nice and clean and shiny. They should be building and cleaning their own fences. And that's going to happen. I, you know, uh, Samuel Clemens probably didn't realize when he wrote that book that that little passage would one day uh, basically characterize or define the entire global economic system that, that we would do on a national scale to the Chinese, what Tom Sawyer was able to do to his buddies you know, on a small scale. But as all this happens and Americans are big losers, you're going to see uh, people in the emerging markets uh, being the big winners because their standard of living are going to rise as ours fall. But not every American has to be a big loser. You can mitigate those losses by getting your savings and your investments out of U.S. dollars and out of U.S. assets and positioning them in the countries that are going to gain the purchasing power that Americans lose. Thank you.